Well, good afternoon. I wasn't very enthusiastic. <laughs> good afternoon. Oh, good, you're all awake. That's good. Uh, Martin said, my name's Ian. Um, uh, I live in Rotherham. Someone has to. Um, I got a call on Wednesday morning from Paul. He said, mate, I'm in trouble. I wondered what he'd done. He said, I've double booked myself. And so, here I am. So, I think you're in the middle of a series in Samson. I'm not going to talk about Samson. We're going to do a one-off, uh, a complete one-off. And uh, hopefully, that'll be enjoyable for all of you. I think some of you I do know, many of you I don't know. But uh, one of my favourite things in all the world is talking to people about Jesus. So, it's a good job uh, when Paul called me that I don't mind coming. And uh, it's a great privilege and joy. I was trying to um, think the other day, which for me is always a dangerous thing, uh, about a character in a sitcom called One Foot in the Grave. Uh, some of you will be too young, I'm sure, to remember this guy. Hands up if you know his name. Shout it out then. <laughs> she said, don't put your hand up. <laughs> don't put... Wait, what's his name? Victor Maldrew, I think we're going to hear. Uh, the thing I was thinking in the office the other day, what was his catchphrase? And I was debating in my, in my mind whether it was, I can't believe it, or whether it was, I don't believe it. Shall we have a little vote? Uh, what, what, who, who votes for I can't believe it? I have to put my hand up for that as well. Who votes for I don't believe it? Well, you're all a lot sharper than I was. It is indeed. I don't believe it. Just listen to this. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I do bit frustrating you can't see the pictures isn't it uh, we could we should have showed that on youtube it's just funny hearing them isn't it i don't believe it well i i think if you want to title for my talk today it's an unusual talk for a christian talk but my title really is i don't believe it um the, there's a dictionary called the urban dictionary which apparently is a dictionary of uh, streetwise chit chat amongst other things and it says, this phrase, I don't believe it, means it, it is an expression of utter disbelief at a truly unfathomable circumstance. Apparently, it says in the dictionary, on discovering a lamppost had crashed to his bedroom window, Victor Meldrew exclaimed, I don't believe it. I think I'd say that as well if a lamppost came through my window. But I want to um, just put a twist on this, because this phrase, I don't believe it, you could use it in two different ways. The first, of course, is like Victor Meldrow uses it. He's a grumpy old man, isn't he? He's frustrated, he's disappointed, he's disillusioned. And you'll say, I just, I don't believe it. I had a little uh, sense of this. 
uh, a couple of weekends ago. I know I don't look old enough, but we had our 20th wedding anniversary just a couple of weeks ago. And um, I was very proud of myself because I got on, on the internet and I booked a weekend away in a little bed and breakfast, little guest house near Bakewell in the Peak District. We've, we've got an, a ministry apprentice who works in our church and he lives with us and I've written it into his contract that he has to babysit our children. So he looked after our five kids and we went off to Bakewell. I was very pleased. I did it all myself. It was all my own work. And when we got there, it turned out to be like a kind of Buddhist vegetarian retreat. And for those of you who know me, I don't know anyone who is less of a vegetarian than I am. Or is that the right way around? Or more of a vegetarian than I am. And um, you could have found me a couple of weeks ago wandering all Bakewell, shaking my head like Victor Melgo, going, I don't believe it. I just don't believe it. 20th one anniversary. I can't even have a fried breakfast. It was a good thing that they had a pub across the road that did steak and alpine. So we enjoyed that. But the other way that you can use this phrase is not so much grumpiness. You could use this another way, much more positively. When someone feels overwhelmed, surprised, pleasantly surprised, with something that they think, wow, how has this happened to me? I don't deserve this. I don't believe it. It's fantastic. Grumpiness or gladness, I don't believe it. We had a new couple in our church from Ireland, and they just got married, and they've come to live in Rotherham to work and to live. And at the end of the last football season, my hometown is Wigan, and they came round to watch the last day of the season. If you know anything about football, Wigan were in danger of going down on the last day of the season. And I, this guy's wife, I don't, I, the terror in her eyes, as we watched this game, and my whole family, Wigan scored the goal against Stoke that was going to keep them up in the Premier League. And we were jumping up and down. The, the light shades were going, and she was sitting in the corner of the room, biting her nails, wondering what's going to happen. And what were we saying? We don't believe it. It's fantastic. We don't believe it. Wigan, little Wigan, that pie-eating town, and we're staying up in the Premier League for the fifth season. Oh, I don't believe it. The joy. You're obviously from Yorkshire. You can't relate to that, can you? Maybe, I know it's a fairy tale, but imagine Cinderella sitting on the end of a bed in the castle. This time last year I was washing dishes. Ugly sisters telling you what to do. She's sitting on the end of the bed. I don't believe it. Why has this happened to me? I know it's a fairy tale. But it's that sense, isn't it, of joy. I don't believe it. Just as we can be shocked by disappointment, sometimes we can be surprised by joy. Martin read to us from this Bible here in front of me, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. I wish I could kind of print this out and give you all a copy. I think that you could put over this little extract that we read the words, I don't believe it. Not in a grumpy sense, like Victor Maldry, but in a joyful, surprising sense. You can, it's hard, isn't it, when you read words, black and white on a page, 
you don't get the sense of energy and joy. Oh, they're very helpful up here, up here, that's good. Paul says, Timothy, mate, I don't believe it. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man, even me, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. I, I, I'm not a scholar, but I understand that that word abundantly is a made-up word because Paul was so excited and thrilled. That word, we translate it abundantly, but in the Greek, there was no such word. And he's really saying, the grace of our Lord was poured on, out on me more than a lot. It's stupendously generous of God to do what he's done. I don't know if some of you are young enough to remember. Uh, you, well, let me say this. It's five to five. It's Friday. It's. <laughs> you are Cracker Jack. I can, I can still picture on mind's eye kids on Cracker Jack answering questions and being loaded with gifts. And then every now and again they'd throw a cabbage on to make them drop more. Do you remember that? And these kids are kind of trying to hold computer games, footballs, all sorts of things, badminton rackets. And um, they feel weighed down. Oh, I hope I can keep hold of this and get it all home. I think that's Paul's sense in this chapter. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. I can hardly believe what God has done. The contrast he's making is between the person he is now and the person that he was. Let me just work with you through some of the things here that Paul is amazed by. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who's given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy. That's an interesting turn of phrase, I think. We often talk about people believing in Jesus. We'll come on to that in a minute. But, you know, I think Paul, in this little section to Timothy, is really saying, do you know what I can't believe, Timothy? That actually Jesus believed in me. He considered me faithful, trustworthy, and appointed me to his service. I'm not a big X Factor fan. Some of you might be, but I was—I did have it on there a couple of weeks ago. The kids had it on, and there was some wannabe pop star there crying her eyes out, saying, "If only someone would just believe in me. If, I, if Gary Barlow could just say you're a great singer, I would just." She's crying her eyes out. She wanted someone to believe in her. The issue here for Paul is that this Jesus, when he looked at Paul, he didn't see what he was, but he saw something in him of potential. He saw what he could be with his help. And Paul's thrilled by that. Not only does Jesus consider him trustworthy and appoint him to his service, but he says, I thank Jesus who has given me strength. He's given me the strength 
to do what he's given me to do. He's not just given me an exam to pass or a task to do. He's given me work to do, but he's put steel and strength and courage and ability on my insides. A lot of people miss this with Christianity. Christianity is not religion. In other words, you do this and you pass a task and God will be pleased with you. Christianity is God putting his strength inside. And that's exactly what Paul says. I don't believe it, Timothy. Jesus has lavished his kindness on me. Some of you know Paul's story. Paul was a very religious man. This is the guy that we get the expression, a Damascus Road experience. He was a very religious man. He was very proud of his high level of morality. He thought he was right with God. He thought he was better than other people. And then he heard of Jesus. And do you know what Paul thought of Jesus? What a tramp. What a tramp. Who do people think this Jesus is? Some no-mark peasant who's kidded people that he's the son of God? Is he for real? And what's more, common people flock to him. What a bunch of gullible idiots. And more than that, after he was quite rightly hung outside the city of Jerusalem to die, his followers then go around saying that he's risen from the dead. What a bunch of no marks. Do they not understand how religion is supposed to work? And Paul made it his life's work to stamp out Christianity and its followers, especially its preachers. And he travelled around throwing Christians into prison, having them executed by stoning them to death. He was a very highly moral man who was angry and violent and who genuinely believed that he was right. He was the original religious terrorist. He says it himself here, the verse historian, I was a blasphemer. That is, I hated the very name of Jesus. I was a persecutor. That is, I hated his followers. I was a violent man. That is, I was insolent, belligerent, arrogant and horrible. He actually says more than that. I acted in ignorance and unbelief. What he's saying is, I was as blind as a bat. I couldn't see past the end of my own nose. Let alone see Jesus. I could not have been more wrong if I was trying to be wrong. If I'd been taught by Professor Wrong at the University of Mac Wrong, I could not have been more wrong. And do you know what happened? Jesus appears to him as he's on his way to Damascus to put more Christians in prison. Christians in prison? That's a spoonerism, that, isn't it? (laughs) As he's on his way to Damascus, Jesus meets him on the road and says to him, why? What a great word that is. Why do you persecute me? Do you know what the subtext of that is? Paul, I love you. I have work for you to do. And there and then, on that Damascus road, Paul is converted. He moves from death to life, 
from a life filled with violence to a life filled with love. He moves from being full of himself to being full of Jesus. Paul here is writing to Timothy and saying to him, Timothy, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Of all the people Jesus could have picked, it is as though Jesus has opened a great big trap door in heaven and all of his goodness has fallen out on top of my head. And I don't deserve any of it. In this little passage, Paul holds himself up as an example of how God deals with human beings. And this is what I want to get to. Just uh, look at verse 15 there. Paul says, Timothy, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is, it's reliable and correct. You can believe it and state your life upon it. That Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. And Timothy, I'm the worst. But this has happened to me so that Jesus might display his unlimited patience for others who believe. I don't, I don't really like talking about sin because it's a bit miserable. And I think when you talk about sin, people start thinking, you know, I'm going to switch off here because this is a bit morbid. But it is my job. And so I want you to bear with me for a minute because you, you won't get Paul's joy until you understand what he understands about sin. So let me illustrate what I mean, okay? This last year, we're going to go back to some other slides here, but um, this last year I've had some minor issues with my blood pressure being a touch too high. You can't tell your blood pressure's high unless you go to doctors. And I had to go and have a check-up, and nobody told me what was going on. I think I'd heard what an ECG, you know, I'd heard of an ECG, but... I'm lying in this doctor's surgery and she starts sticking all these wires on me. And I, I really thought she was going to electrocute me as a like shock therapy. And I'm lying there bracing myself for like this little jolt. I knew it wouldn't be powerful. And then she said, that's it, Mr. Jones. And started taking them off. And this little printer prints out a printout. She said, your heart's fine. That was a relief. But anyway, I was in the doctor's surgery. All the results were fine. And the blood pressure's just a little smidge too high. I think my wife thought my results had been mixed up with someone else's after all the macadies that I ate. But um, I want you to imagine this, okay? Here's Mr. World. This is the world, okay? And he's going to the doctors. Let's just call him Mr. World. He's going to the doctors, and the doctor is God, okay? And he sits on, Mr. World sits on the sofa, and God, the doctor, sticks the little things on him and gives him an ECG and gets the print off and does some blood tests. What do you think the doctor's diagnosis will be? Here's my question for you. It's a daft illustration, but what do you think is the problem with the world? It's a good question. What is God's diagnosis of the world? Paul says here, Christ Jesus came into the world 
to save sinners. What that means is that God's diagnosis is not that we need more education, that's a good thing. Not that we need better upbringing, that's a good thing. The biggest issue is that this world has rebelled against its maker. And I want to talk to you just for two minutes here about sin. I think there's three different ways of looking at sin, and we don't often talk about this, but let me just give you three. I've got three little pictures here. One of the words the Bible uses to describe sin is the word transgression. It's an obvious word, because if you draw a line and then you cross it, it's like transgression, okay? So one way of looking at sin in the Bible is that God has drawn the lines and we step over them constantly. You know, you can talk about the Ten Commandments, whatever commandments you want, but the line's there and we, we cross the line. That's one way. Another word that the Bible uses to describe sin is the word iniquity. This is an interesting word. And again, I don't look old enough, but I have played a little bit of crown green balls. Do you play crown green balls up here? I don't know. Good, you do it to Yorkshire. When you ball the ball, what a stupid game it is, because the balls don't go straight, do they? You get the ball, and it's like, oh, it goes over there. Because they've got a little weight on one side, so you have to get into habit of, if you want to aim over there, you have to go over there, and it kills round. It's quite satisfying when you get it right. That is a great illustration, I think, of iniquity. We have within our human nature a bias within us and we always seem to veer away from where we should go. We don't veer towards God. We're always veering away into the shadows. That's another way. And the third, third way of looking at this, we've just got a new assistant minister in our church called Richard and he's a national archerist. Is that what they say? Archer. He's got massive kind of contraptions with all sorts of things on them. And he, he, he does it. I think he did it for England at one time, but he's very good at archery. I didn't know this. He, he didn't tell me this, but I found this out in this last year. Do you know what an archer calls an arrow that misses the target? They're not, it's not a religious thing, but they call an arrow that misses the target a sinner. I never knew that. Because one way of looking at the word sin is that you're aiming for the bullseye, you consistently fall short. Now, I don't know about you, I know about Paul, and I know about me. When I think of those three things, that's me. Crossing the line, veering off course, falling short, that is what the Bible describes as a diagnosis of what's wrong with Mr. World. But do you know what the great message of the Bible is? Christ Jesus came into the world to save people like that, like me, like Paul. And Paul says, I don't believe it. It's fantastic. What an amazing message that is. This is why religion doesn't work. If you're trying to be religious without dealing with the root cause, you're still going to veer off course and fall short. What we need is saving Do you know if God was like Victor Meldry, which thank God he isn't, he would say, I don't believe it. What an ungrateful human race. But Paul, he, he doesn't do that. He sent Christ into the world to save sinners. That word save is a strong one. I'm thinking of a fireman going into a burning building 
to rescue someone at great cost themselves. I'm thinking of lifeguards sailing in the boat in the storm to where someone's drowning in the sea and pulling them into the boat and taking them to safety. Did you hear about Prince William's 24-hour shift in his um, helicopter when he, he, he went up into the lakes to rescue some walkers that were stranded? I'm thinking of someone who's in terrible debt being bailed out and liberated from it. Some people think that Jesus is a great teacher, and he is. But that isn't the primary thing. Jesus is a great saviour. The Bible message is all about rescue. Jesus coming into the world to die, to save sinful people like Paul, like me, and like you. Look at what Paul says. If there's a sinner in the world, I'm the worst. No one has lived as proud and ignorant a life as me. And look at what Jesus has done for me. Timothy, I don't believe it. What he's really saying is, Timothy, if Jesus can save me, he can save anyone. If he can strengthen me, he can strengthen anyone. If he can give me a job to do for him, he can do that for anyone. And he ends this little passage by just bursting into singing praises to God. I don't believe it. It is an expression of utter disbelief at a truly unfathomable circumstance. We're nearly done. I just want to say three quick things for you to take away home with you, free of charge. It's all free. Number one, we've got the next slide. Three things. Christianity is not what people think it is. It is not rules, but Jesus. Someone has said that religion is all about doing, doing, doing. Christianity is the complete opposite. It is all about done, done, done. Jesus has done it. It means that God loves you in spite of your failure. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Secondly, this is a message that changes people's lives in a way that religion can't. Sometimes people are uncomfortable with this because they think, if Jesus forgives people, they'll just do what they want, won't they? It's like a little free pass. You're on your way to heaven. You can live like you please. If you preach this sort of message, it'll be chaos. Tell people to behave themselves. Don't tell them that Jesus loves them. Do you get the impression that's what it was like for Paul? This is a message that completely transformed his life. I said to you we went to Bakewell and the pub across the road from the Buddhist vegetarian retreat. We went there for some steak and ale pie. I've never had this experience in my life before. I went into the pub to order some drinks. The woman, who I think owned the pub, comes to the bar. I said to her, do you take cards? She said, no, sorry, love. We only take cheques or cash. But... If you haven't got any cash or a cheque, we'll give you our address and we'll give you the bill at the end when you're finished and you can post a cheque on to us. 
have, have you ever had that in a, in a, in a place before? I've never, I've never seen this woman. She said, I, I don't know whether they were, you know, profitable. But do you know what? I, in, in that moment in front of her, I just thought to myself, do you know, I bet there's not many people who don't. Why is that? It's because there's an element of trust there, isn't it? When you get that sense of someone's trusted me, what do you want to do? You, want to kind of, you don't want to abuse it, do you? And I, I, I bet there's very few people who don't. I, I just I thought it was amazing. I think there's a little sense of that, and it's, it's a poor illustration, but I think Paul is saying to Timothy, I don't, but what Jesus has done for me, I just don't believe it. I love him. I want to follow him. He's amazing. My whole life has been changed. You can't make anyone good by forcing them to keep rules. The way to make someone good is for them to be gripped by this sort of radical love and acceptance and grace. When you get a hold of that, it will change your life and heart by God's grace. Here's my, th- my third question is this. And it's a simple one. Do you believe in Jesus? Paul actually says here, the very reason this has happened to me was so that I might be an example for others who would believe in Jesus. There's another way to say I don't believe it that's not grumpy or glad. It's just deliberate refusal. Do you remember in the Bible there's a character called Thomas and um, after Jesus died and rose again, he appeared to his disciples and Thomas he must have gone to the bank or something. He wasn't there. And the other disciples met Thomas afterwards and they said to him, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. He's alive. Thomas said, I'm not having that. I don't believe it. Unless Jesus comes here and I can put my fingers in the holes where the nails were, I will not believe it. The following week, they were all together and Jesus appeared to the whole group again. And he very graciously said to Thomas, Thomas, come and put your fingers here. And he didn't need to. It says in the Bible that he fell down in front of Jesus and said, my Lord and my God. There is a way to say I don't believe it that is cynical. It really has the sense of I won't believe it. The simple message of the Bible is we're broken, Jesus can fix us. And the response to this is to trust him. Someone might say, I will believe, but not yet. What's that all about? Rising believing in Jesus. Someone might say, I'm enjoying looking, but I'm not ready to buy. <laughs> I like that one. If you know of a better offer, than this one, you come and tell me afterwards and I'll give up being a minister and I'll come and follow you. Because there isn't a message any greater than this one. Someone might say, I'm too bad. We've already dealt with that. But someone else might say, I'm too good. Why do I need a saviour? I'm not as bad as him who lives next door. It isn't about comparing yourself with other people. It's about what God's diagnosis is. Someone might say, I'm going to sort myself out a little bit and then I'll come. That's not belief. Someone might say, you've no idea how busy I am. 
I'm too busy with other stuff at the moment. When I'm old, like Victor Maldry, then I'll, then I'll kind of get to grips with this stuff. That isn't belief. The whole idea of this passage here is that of coming to Jesus. And I just want to close with this. I, don't, I know some of you, I don't know all of you. The whole idea of the Christian gospel is to stop looking at you and start looking at him. It really means putting everything, your whole life, your aspirations, your hopes, dreams, joys, sorrows, fears, inadequacies, in a great big fat wheelbarrow and bringing it all to the feet of Jesus. And allowing him to come underneath you. Not helping him to do it, but just bringing it to him and letting him do it. Don't be a Victor Maldry and say, I don't believe it in a grumpy way. Don't be like Thomas and say, I don't believe it in a cynical, stubborn way. Be like Paul and say, I don't believe it. He really means he does. (laughs) I don't believe it. It's amazing. May that be your experience, every one of you, to come to Jesus and say, I don't believe it, how kind he has been to me. And may you know Paul's joy in your own heart and life.